0: to us as well. And uh, so why don't you turn there to Ezekiel 19 and 20. I'm going to focus uh, more of uh, our time on the 19th chapter, which is much shorter than the 20th chapter. The 20th chapter uh, is fairly lengthy, uh, 49 verses. As I told you a few weeks ago, we would kind of pick our way through, sometimes read a few verses, look at some overall themes Chapter 20 is a whole light like chapter 16, and if you go back and read chapter 16 and compare it with chapter 20, they're very similar. Uh, God uh, repeats certain things so many times because the weight is so heavy. Uh, The judgment is going to be so heavy that he is building uh, just an airtight case, if you will, if you're looking at it, say, why would God bring such a heavy judgment? Uh, Well, uh, some of these chapters kind of repeat the same things uh, and the Lord may come at it from a slightly different angle. So we'll look at some of the nuances that are different. It's not an exact replica of the 16th chapter by any, any stretch, uh, but there are a lot of similarities. So let's start with chapter 19. Uh, we'll read some things, uh, we'll read most of 19 and then we'll stop and when we get to chapter 20 uh, we'll read some of the verses uh, out of that chapter. So starting with verse 1, Chapter 19, moreover, take up lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What is your mother? A lioness. She laid down among the lions, among the young cubs. She nourished her cubs and brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey, and he devoured men. The nations also heard of him, and he was trapped in their pit, and they brought him a chain to the land of Egypt. And when he saw that, she waited uh, that her hope was lost. She took another one of her cubs and made him a young lion. He roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey and devoured men. Uh, Drop down to, verse 8, we'll just uh, move to 8. Then the nations set around him from the provinces every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit. They put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. Verse 10, your mother was like a vine in uh, your bloodline planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. She had strong branches for scepters and of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches, was seen in her height amid the dense foliage, but she she was plucked up in fury and cast down to the ground. The east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. Now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has come out from a rod from her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we open your word, that we'll see something new, we'll see something uh, fresh, we'll see something, Jesus, uh, that you want uh, each individual person to hear, that the Spirit would speak. uh, Lord, that I would decrease, that you would increase mightily, uh, that you'd be glorified, and we would be strengthened. We live in days similar Uh, to the nation of Israel, where every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes, Lord. And we pray that uh, we would be the salt and light that you've called us to be. And you'd use these midweek gatherings uh, to strengthen us more and more as we see your return approaching. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you see the title of uh, our teaching tonight, Taken for Granted. Uh, You ever taken something for granted? Every day you didn't. Put it that way, right? You know, there's always something that we're taking for granted. Uh, we have these. We have a deep capacity to take things for granted, don't we? Uh, like we we don't naturally uh, think of everything we should be thankful for and remember all the blessings of God. But we we automatically take things for granted, and sometimes we take for granted uh, the things that are closest to us, and we take for granted the things that clearly were the blessings of God. Israel was blessed so much by the Lord, weren't they? Now, all of uh, you know, the Israel's past, they could look back and see that God had made a way for them and had provided for them and had sended, uh, or sent, uh, sent truth and had always uh, come through when Israel needed the Lord. He was always there. Uh, but the things that Israel took for granted uh, would someday be their demise because uh, they started to believe uh, that all of those things that they had received from the lord were just always going to be there and they weren't incumbent upon them to actually obey the lord and to follow the lord and to worship the lord and to hear his voice Uh, they thought just because hey we uh, were god's people he'll always take care of us now there was plenty of evidence you've been with us to say otherwise they they had seen uh, many things happen that would, would lead. Uh, you'd think someone to believe that, hey, maybe, maybe this thing is falling apart. Maybe it's crumbling a little bit. I look at our own nation, and I see things that say, I, I'd say, you, you can't see that crack in the wall? Oh, no, no, it looks perfectly fine to me. Uh, well, to me, it looks like papier-mâché. You know, and you start to see that uh, some of our own blessings could be taken away, even in our lifetime, and Israel uh, would see this take place. But if you're taking notes, uh, I've divided the text between chapter 19 and chapter 20 into three things. We'll look uh, first at chapter 19, two shadows, and then we'll look at two patterns and two certainties from chapter 20. These two shadows, um, there's two illustrations that the Lord gives. The first, uh, if you like to watch Animal Planet, uh, God uses lions to describe this first image or um, picture, if you will. And the lioness here is Judah. Uh, the tribe of Judah uh, became the kingdom of Judah. Originally, it was one of the twelve tribes, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, and it becomes uh, one of the tribes. It was the largest tribe coming out of uh, the wilderness. It was the one that actually would lead and go out in front as well. Uh, but Judah was uh, uh, this this large tribe that became the kingdom of Judah. When the southern kingdom split from the northern kingdom after uh, the reign of Solomon, you had this split of the kingdoms and you had the ten, ten tribes in the north, and Judah becomes the southern kingdom, its own nation. And the lamentation here, this lamentation or this weeping and crying in uh, just sadness for what's taking place, is for the fall and collapse of the princes or the royal family of Judah the royal family is going to collapse. There's not going to be a royal family very soon. At this time, when Ezekiel's receiving this prophecy from the Lord, there's still a royal family, and there's still someone seated in power in Judah, albeit, if you've been with us, uh, they're a bit of a, uh, a vassal or a puppet of the Babylonian Empire, but nevertheless, uh, the royal family is still intact. Um, not all of them there. Some princes have been carried away to Babylon but there still is, uh, the royal family of Judah is still intact, but they're going to be completely uprooted. In Judah, Judah was the tribe of the royal lineage of King David and King Solomon, and uh, their dynasties, of course, David and Solomon, that was the, the glorious age uh, of the history of the kingdoms uh, of Israel. But the kings that came from their bloodline were, uh, would still be the uh, kings that would rule over Judah or the southern kingdom. And under David and Solomon, uh, Judah and the nation of Israel, because remember under David and Solomon, there was one kingdom. There wasn't the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You had one uh, con- uh, continuous nation. Of course, they had land that was well outside of what Israel has today, uh, in the Jordan and uh, up into Syria and all the way up into Lebanon and down into parts of um, uh, the south towards uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula as well. But uh, that was a powerful nation at that time, under David and Solomon, a very powerful nation. You can th- kind of think of a roaring lion standing on top of a vista looking out, and that's the way the kingdom was, sitting abreast the mountains of Israel, right there, 25, 2,600 feet above sea level, and they uh, would shoulder the mountains with their kingdom seated there, and eventually the temple would sit up there as well that Solomon would build, sitting majestically. And when you come up the hill, you'd see that the glory of Jerusalem was there. And all of that was part of the kingdom that David and Solomon built. And then their descendants would continue to inherit Jerusalem as a city and just the glory that came with uh, being uh, the ruler of Judah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49 for just a second. Uh, Genesis 49, when Jacob went to, came time for Jacob to die, to go home and be with the Lord. Uh, he had a blessing uh, for each of the sons, and you may be familiar with what he says to Judah, but let's take a look at it uh, because it's relevant to what we're looking at here. Uh, Genesis 49, starting with verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. You know, have you ever seen a lion attack a lot of times? What is it? Attacks the neck? Breaks the neck? Sorry, ladies. The guys kind of like this kind of stuff. They, like, they're, they're remembering what they watched two nights ago on Nat Geo and stuff like that. But my wife knows I like this stuff, too. I don't know why. Maybe... we're all like that, I don't know. Uh, Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, a young powerful lion. You know, the the strength and the vigor that's there. Uh, From the prey, my son, you have gone up, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him? So Jacob was given this prophecy, Lord, that Judah would be powerful, would be given uh, a special kind of power and presence of the Lord. Again, it would be the largest tribe. It would be able to be its own kingdom, if you will, though Benjamin was also part of the southern kingdom. Uh, but he goes on to say, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And To him shall be the obedience of the people. We'll come back to a couple of those uh, uh, thoughts in chapter 10 or verse 10 there. Uh, but Judah... Would have a lawgiver that would never depart, and we know who that uh, will be from the uh, from the tribe of Judah. But I wanted to just uh, read that to you. Uh, Judah was was to be a powerful and protective lion. That makes sense. Judah's role would be: uh, you ever, if you come from a family and you got some big brothers, there'd be one brother that was maybe older, tougher, that would stand up for you. And Judah was to be a a protective and powerful lion to protect the pride, to go out and do battle. Now, the other tribes did these things as well, but Judah had this special blessing in chapter 49 of Genesis. Uh, And they were supposed to protect their own, but Judah was to be, a said, the neck of your enemies, right? Judah was to be a terror to the enemies of God. But over time... The rulers of Judah were a terror to their own people, especially the kings that were in place when this prophecy is now. Some of the kings before Manassas was quite wicked, and there was other kings that that were a terror to their own people. But the Lord is speaking here of the kings that are, uh, or the rulers that have been placed uh, right in the kind of time that Babylon had begun the first and second uh, siege, and then the third siege is yet to come. But these kings were a terror to their own people, their own brothers. They were vindictive. They were oppressive. They were greedy. They killed and enslaved the prophets of God simply because the prophets of God spoke the truth. That The the power that the lions had, they used to really attack their own people. There was no repentance. Uh, By the way, some of the things coming out of our leaders in Washington uh, and even state and local government leaders and even small municipality leaders, if you, you know, kind of keep up with anything, uh, you would think sometimes that the American people are the enemy when you listen to some of the things that you see and hear. And uh, the churches are the enemy. You know, the the, the kind of anyone that's going to uh, say what the Word of God says is somehow bigoted and wrong and hateful and you know the the people saying that have veins popping out the increasing hatred of biblical truth and wisdom uh, that was happening in Israel's time too the leaders didn't want to hear it they did not want to hear anything that was moral they didn't want to hear anything that was right Uh, even in our own nation there seems to be more vitriol for citizens for political opponents for differing views um than there is for murderous regimes and terror organizations around the world. And the growing, uh, if you look at it, you look at the growing wealth and the business benefits and the perks and the seeming immunity from laws that some of our political leaders uh, seem to enjoy. And again, this is at all levels. Uh, way back when I was in Miami, uh, I was in college, I did, uh, I did um, uh, a paid internship with with a rather large government organization in Florida, Uh, And I saw all kinds of crazy stuff. Things that you and I would never get away with, not that we would ever want to do those things, we would never get away with, that people that are connected in leadership positions in government, not a problem at all. People looking the other way. All this was common in Judah too. This isn't new, it's not new to America, it's not new to any country, but the Lord still despises it. And it's leaders abusing their own people using their power, uh, using their position. Uh, The cubs, the cubs that are mentioned here, uh, they're kings that came from Judah, came from the tribe of Judah. Uh, They developed into young lions or young leaders uh, with their military and their positions of power. They had, of course, uh, they did have military, but they had their positions of power. Uh, Specifically, God is speaking here uh, of the kings that have taken the throne just before Judah's final destruction at the hands of Babylon. So these are the most recent and current leaders of Judah. Uh, they didn't know, these leaders didn't know that the sands of time uh, for Judah and Jerusalem, you know, the hourglass, is, it, it's just slipping through. They don't seem to know that. They don't know that uh, they're going to be destroyed. They're slipping through. But in their arrogance, in these leaders' arrogance, Uh, The royal family, if you will, their uh, arrogance—they continued to intimidate and oppress their own people the way a lion could with a weaker prey, quite easily. Just toying with it, if you will. But these uh, these rulers, uh, in fact, they were so volatile that the nations around them didn't trust them. Isn't that interesting? The nations around them started to not be able to trust them either, even though the nations around them weren't. Followers of God? Sometimes even unsaved people look at other unsaved people and say, I wouldn't follow you. Sometimes unsaved people show more wisdom. Sometimes I think people that seem or should know uh, the truth. Verses 3 and 4, take a look here. Um, Verse 3 and 4, she brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion, learned to catch prey. But he was trapped in their pit, and they brought him and changed to Egypt. Uh, This is a picture of Jehoahaz, he was deposed by Pharaoh Nico of Egypt in 609 BC. Uh, and Niko took him to cap took him in captivity down to Egypt. He only reigned for three months. Uh, he was never heard from again. Took him down to Egypt. He gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. You're getting a free trip to Egypt, and no one ever heard from him. Verses five through nine that uh, portrays Jehoiakim. Um, he also, uh, verse six, he roved among the lions. He became a young lion, learned to catch prey. He devoured men. Uh, he was no fan of prophets and truth. Uh, he himself, in verse nine, um, he was. Or verse part of verse eight, he was trapped in a pit. They put him in a cage with chains, brought him to Babylon. Jehoiakim, who in 597 B.C., uh, he was carried away into captivity to Babylon, so he goes with to what would be modern-day Iraq. Uh, he was taken there in a cage, just like a caged animal, all the way. That's a long ways to go. Um, by the route they usually go, it's up down the Euphrates River. So he's taken there in a cage. He would remain imprisoned in Babylon for 37 years. God actually ends up having mercy on him. He's released at the age of 55, uh, but he goes there in 597. But it's a shadow of what was once a royal and dignified throne. And remember, you know, Judah was supposed to have uh, the picture of a regal lion, kind of like you, you ever. Uh, uh, they were supposed to be like Mufasa. Remember, uh, remember the Lion King. Not like Scar. You know that was uh, the opposite. Uh, even today, uh, when we're in Israel, this whole lion theme is still. You got to have it on. That always helps. But uh, I took this picture of a manhole when I was in Jerusalem. That's actually the the official emblem. That wasn't. That color was not on the manhole. But I put that there. But uh, that's the official emblem of Jerusalem, and. Uh, So it is a picture of the Lion of Judah even to this day. And Israel became a nation in 48. By 1950, they had already chosen that the Lion of Judah would be the symbol of Jerusalem, the same place where David and Solomon sat. And you can see there's lions, right? There's one. And there's another one uh, at the Lion Gate. There really is a Lion Gate. There it is right there. And so uh, still to this day, um, Jerusalem considers the lion, a regal lion, to be the image, and and uh, the Lord had this plan and purpose uh, that it would be a protective lion, but instead uh, it became uh, arrogant, proud, turning on its own, and becomes and will become a shadow of what it once was, because God's going to completely, uh, completely remove it. There's nothing worse than seeing something that was big and majestic become diseased, and all of a sudden, like a, like a front leg broken. You've seen this with animals that had great strength and power and, and just kind of die away. Well, that's exactly what's happening. The Lord's painting the picture that Israel, or Judah, uh, is going to go down. But there's another shadow here, too, in verses 10 through 14. Uh, another picture, if you will. Uh, your mother was like a, a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches. Um, it was not just the fallen and corrupted leadership but also a land and a nation that is now wasting away and is going to be completely consumed and barren though they don't know it yet even though Jeremiah's told them way back when Isaiah told them Ezekiel's telling them so it's not just that the royal family is going to be cast down and cast out but the land itself is going to suffer also the vine or the tree in verse 11, uh, it says in verse 11, she had strong branches for scepters of rulers, for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches, was seen in her height amid the dense foliage. Uh, the vine here, and it towered and was strong and had these fruitful branches, was what Judah once was Figuratively. Uh, again, under David and Solomon, it would constitute the whole nation, not just the southern kingdom, but even the southern kingdom at first would have towered and had a a beauty and a grace and and a majesty, still had a lot of power. Uh, But it's not just the nation itself uh, that it's figuratively speaking of, but also literally the geographic area. As Judah took God for granted, so it also took for granted the beauty and the blessing of where she had been planted by the Lord. You and I should never take for granted where we've been planted, amen? If God's planted you in this church, it may not be as magnificent as some, but you don't take it for granted. If you say, well, my spouse isn't perfect, well, they don't think you're perfect either, so don't take them for granted, right? Wherever you've been planted, grow there, glorify the Lord, and, and God will show you, over time, you'll have more appreciation, not less appreciation for it. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. And so the Lord had given uh, Judah a great piece of land. The Lord wanted her to glorify him in that land. Israel as a nation and parts of the land that was ancient Judah, if you go to Israel now, uh, if you go to Israel today, Uh, The parts of what was ancient Judah uh, are flourishing at an astounding and an amazing rate in many different ways. Most of this is due to modern ingenuity that God has blessed. Notice what I said, modern ingenuity that God has blessed. You can have modern ingenuity and God can choose not to bless it and it goes nowhere. Desalination plants that they're using over there, all those things, the Lord is blessing it. Um, And some of the blessing is due to the diverse climate zones uh, that are in Israel, the topographical, uh, the geographical advantages. um, And even those things are being better harnessed, understanding what the advantages uh, of the environmental area are. Uh, But it appears that without any of the modern technology, go all the way back to when Joshua comes into the land. Without any of the modern technology and ingenuity that we have today, the land that Joshua brought the people into, and the land that David and Solomon would then rule over, was more lush, more beautiful, more desirable than anything has been seen in Israel in the last 2600 years. No one in the last 26 years has seen what it looked like, and that was remember 2600 years is when the fall of uh, Jerusalem comes. You go even further back Than that, when Joshua comes in the land and when King David and Solomon, it's even further back. Look at verse 15 in chapter 20, just real quick. We're going to get over there in uh, just a minute, but look at verse 15, just so you get an idea of just how gorgeous this land was when Judah first inherited it. Verse 15 So I raised my hand in an oath to bring them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey the glory of all lands, the glory of all lands. Even when the Romans came, even when the Romans came and occupied Israel, the land was still full of forest, still full of forest. You can read the uh, the ancient horse historians will tell you that. Uh, Some of those forests likely grew back after Babylon's siege because Babylon burnt a lot, cut down a lot. Uh, And the ancient and majestic Judean date palms were still there by the thousands when the Romans got there. Uh, By around 500 A.D., the Judean date palm had become extinct. There were none, zero, no more Judean date palms anywhere. And then in 1973, I was four, I don't remember this, excavations at the site of Herod the Great's uh, fortified palace there at Masada. When we were in Israel, we went around Masada. And uh, in Masada, they ended up finding these clay jars. And in the clay jars were seeds, a collection of seeds. Um, And they had been sitting dormant for 2,000 years. And then in 2005, 10 years ago, not ancient history, 2005, researcher, Elaine Saloey, she received permission to try and grow one of the seeds, and it was a Judean date palm seed. And miraculously, this seed began to germinate. 2,000 years later, it began to germinate. And this is it today. At first, they started growing it in a little pot, and then out of the pot, they've put it into the earth, and that's it right there. 2,000-year-old seed. Most people said it will never grow. There's, it, it's dead. Uh, it's completely dead. There's no chance that this thing will grow. But one is growing. The ancient Hebrews, they referred to the Judean date palm as the tree of life. You and know, I always think apple or something. They didn't. Tree of life. It was known for being not only a tremendously healthy food, but also medicinal uh, capabilities. It was uh, cited. In ancient uh, writings, as treating cancer, malaria, and toothaches. But as the nation would be cut down and ultimately carried to a dry land, look at verse 13, chapter 19, verse 13. She's now planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. As the nation would be cut down and taken to a dry land, and that dry land would be Babylon. Because Babylon is not the glory of nations, Babylon had some fertile areas by the riverbed similar to parts of Egypt, although the upper, upper Nile and the delta is very, very lush. But you know if you go further down the Nile, it's only lush on each side of the Nile. And it's similar in, in uh, parts of Iraq. But when they go and they're carried in captivity to Babylon, Babylon is not near as beautiful and forested and lush as the land of Israel, as the land flowing with milk and honey. So they're taken to a dry and thirsty land. They're taken to Babylon. And just as Judah was so naturally lush and flourishing, but would due to sin and rebellion be reduced in its capacity and productivity, the land would be degraded. It would take many steps backwards. And because of judgment the land would be a shadow of what it once was. And so by the time Israel is given the right to be a nation again in 1948, it was a wasteland. Just a complete desert wasteland and swampland. People would have never dreamed you mean this was beautiful 2600 years? Yes. It was still beautiful even like I said when the Romans got there. The Judean date palms were everywhere. They cut tons of them down. They had ended up cutting the forest down, not just the Judean date palms, but many other trees for, to make crosses to crucify people. I mean, just it's amazing what empires will just wipe out. But God allowed it all to happen. Why? Because when we get to later Ezekiel, the, the dry bones have to come back to life. The Lord is all, this is part of the plan of God. And then there's this last statement in verse 14, and that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling no strong branch, and a scepter for ruling. Isaiah 11:1 1 tells us that there shall come forth a rod from Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah mentioned in Revelation 5, 5, and the lawgiver mentioned in Genesis 49, which we read, will be the, one, will be the only one, will be the only ruler that has ever fully glorified Lord. David made his mistakes, Solomon made his mistakes, and all of their descendants made many more mistakes. Not all of them, but most of them. Hezekiah and Josiah had some very good things that they did. But, um, but Jesus, when he is the lion, finally there would be the protective lion, right? The regal lion, the one that would only do right and justice, and he'll restore not only the people, But also the land will come back to life. More than I mean, even though Israel is flourishing today, it still has lots of headroom, lots of opportunity. There's still a lot of desert area in the south. Uh, The Judean Desert is huge. I mean, given the size of Israel, the percentage of it. So let's take a look at chapter 20. You see these two shadows. Let's take a look at the two patterns and the two certainties. Uh, Obviously, I'm not going to read all these verses. As I mentioned, uh, this parallels much of what you see in chapter 16. Uh, but let's take a look at a few of them. Let's start with, um, let's start with verse 6. Now, I'll set the stage. Uh, these elders, they come uh, they come before Ezekiel, and they inquire of the Lord. They're always inquiring of Ezekiel, uh, but they really don't have any intention. I don't know what, you know, sometimes people will inquire of you. Uh, they're hoping that you'll agree with them. And Ezekiel's never going to agree with them. He's only going to give them the truth, the thus saith Lord. But I guess sometimes they think, well, maybe this time Ezekiel will tell us everything's going to be okay, and God's just, he's kind of, he's as happy as he can be about your behavior. I think America thinks this, right? That one of these days, God's going to say, you know what? I was totally wrong about that whole marriage thing. You guys figured it out, you geniuses. You figured it out in five years. What I, all eternity, could never figure out. I don't know how you did it, but you did it. And so I'm very happy to say I've changed my total mind. You guys are right. I'm wrong. But that's never going to happen with the Lord. He changeth not, the scriptures say. Aren't you glad he doesn't change? He doesn't change with the wind like we do. But they come and they inquire of him. And and he says in verse 3, I will not be inquired of by you. It's, that's, that's the Lord speaking to them. So I don't, I'm not even going to answer your questions. But I, what I will do is I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Your questions irrelevant. What I'm going to do, and but God gives them a history lesson before He tells them what's going to happen. First, He takes them back in time to take them forward in time. He starts. Look, look um, at the end of verse five. I raised my hand and oath saying, I am the Lord your God. This is when they were down in Egypt. Remember, uh, all the children of Israel end up in Egypt. Over 400 years they're afflicted there, as he told uh, Abraham back in Genesis 15, verse 6. On the day I raised my hand and oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Same thing, says it twice. Then I said, Each of you, now this is when they're still in Egypt. Now, We get some added insight here of what was going on. You might get the impression sometimes when you read the children's stories that all the children of Israel in Egypt were really godly people just waiting to be set free to go worship God. That's not what it was like. There were some godly people, but a lot of them, it was like God was taking pagan people out of pagan people. Why do you think they ended up building a golden calf and things like that? Many of them were attached to the same gods, of Egypt. And the Lord says, each of you, in verse 7, I told you to throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am Lord your God. Verse 8, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. This is before they even left. This is still in Egypt. A little added insight. So guy's like, "You didn't, you didn't know the whole story, but I already saw a lot of problems with the group that was going to end up in the wilderness." So God wasn't shocked when they became a complaining people and built the uh, built the golden calf and all those things because a lot of this was in their hearts there. But I acted, verse nine, for my name's sake that it should not be profaned. And God always preserves His own name, doesn't He? Verse 11, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live. It goes on and says, I gave them my Sabbaths, I gave them my laws. Verse 12, uh, verse 13, yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. So then they're, they're, they're delivered, they go through the Red Sea, they're in the, uh, the wilderness, and yet they rebel again. Verse 14, but I acted for my name's sake, that should not be framed uh, among the Gentiles. Remember, Moses would plead for the people. Uh, there as well Um, so he didn't destroy them all in the wilderness so i raised my hand and oath verse 15 we read that already Uh, again saying my intention is to take you to the land flowing with milk and honey at this time the history lesson god hasn't taken them there that's the destination they haven't arrived there by the way in our in our life that's a picture of not heaven but the spirit filled life god desires you and i to be full of what we looked at in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoicing, thanksgiving. We'd be thankful that we would be those that have a prayer life, that we'd be those that dwell on. The spirit-filled life is the desire. The land flowing milk and honey for you and I is the spirit-filled life. Heaven is greater than that. Isn't that great? Heaven's even greater. So then he goes on. But they despise my judgments, verse 16. Did not walk in them. Verse 17. Nevertheless, my eyes despaired them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said to their children. So God says, all right, next generation. Here, let's try it again. Next generation. Verse 18. I said to their children in the wilderness. Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgment. Defile yourself with idols. Uh, But they ended up doing it as well, notwithstanding. Verse 21. The children rebelled against me. Nevertheless, verse 22, I acted for my name's sake. And so there's this pattern that goes on. I'm not going to read all of it. Then it goes into verses 23 uh, all the way down to verse 32. Uh, It goes into the just debauchery and wickedness that ends up happening. Uh, As the children of Israel become more and more rebellious, the sin becomes worse. There becomes child sacrifice. I mean... You know, some children of Israel would have never dreamed that future generations would kill babies the same way as the pagan nations did and, and take a live baby and put it on the molten hands of, of a god like, of a false god like Molech and to watch them burn to death. They wouldn't have thought it was possible. But many of our uh, ancestors wouldn't have, wouldn't have believed that we could kill 50 million babies in America. They wouldn't have believed it, that we would dwarf the number of people killed in all the other wars that America has fought in. They wouldn't have believed that was possible. But the wickedness would continue to grow, and so all the other sins, the immorality, the sexual sins would become more and more pronounced, uh, the arrogance, the idolatry, and, and then yet they still believed that God was okay with them. I mean, you go to any sporting event, you could have people that just use God's name in vain 25 times before the game started. Here comes the national anthem. Hey, 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 be quiet. This is God and country. Come on. Just no concept that God is not actually with you. He's not, in, he's not really kind of in step with your life at this point. Now, he certainly is willing to give repentance. But look at verse Verse uh, 32. What you have in your mind, you shall never be. We say, we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries, serving wood and stone. Israel had this intense desire to be like the rest of the world. They wanted to be worldly. They wanted to have other gods. And so their rebellion would escalate. And yet all the time, God's grace was there. Take a look. at I made this little chart. Hopefully it makes sense to you. Um, it kind of goes side by side. It's kind of taking a, it's kind of taking a look at, um, from a timeline perspective, the Egyptian deliverance all the way to the Babylonian captivity. So in Egypt, God takes them out of captivity, which in some ways, many of those that were there still were resistant, and you could, God could have made the case that you're not coming out. <laughs> because you actually still have your heart set on the same God as Egypt. But yet, he pulled everyone out, and that's an act of what? Grace. Everyone got to come out. Whether they were still worshiping Egyptian gods, or whether they were worshiping the God of Moses and Aaron, everyone got to come out. And there was righteous people, and there were some that were not. And even still in the body of Christ, or not the body of Christ, the church uh, organization, you have wheat and tares. You have unsaved people that sit in church pews right beside saved people. And God's common grace continues to give the word week after week after week. But they, um, they were delivered here, and then you get all the way to captivity when they would go into a captivity, whereas they began coming out of a captivity. And from the time of the Egyptian deliverance, their rebellion grows while God's grace narrows. Their rebellion's going like this, and God's grace is narrowing. And folks... We're living in a time in America where the rebellion is mushrooming and the God's grace is narrowing because they will meet at a nexus point at some point, right? And only God knows where that is, where he says, your rebellion has reached to the heavens, scriptures talk about this, and my grace is now ended. Now, there's a difference between, you know, the grace for salvation, but remember I said nations must be judged. Nations will receive judgment. All nations will be judged. Even Israel has been judged and will be judged even more before there's the final, just, uh, you know, God finally does that final work in the nation of Israel. But does that make sense? That God's grace is narrowing while the rebellion is growing. And so it just gives you a little picture of uh, what's taking place on a timeline. Um, The Lord does not, uh, and that's why I title, if you're taking notes, this is two patterns. Um, God's desire would that they would be repentant, but at some point God does pull the plug on nations that won't repent, and Israel is no exception. Even though they were after, his, uh, they were they were the nation that He loved; they were His chosen people. He still is going to judge His own nation. Spurgeon said, "God's mercy." You know, you look at all the time that God gave uh, Israel mercy over all these many years. Um, and as, as the Lord points out, even when they rebelled, he still, for his own namesake, would stay his wrath, stay his wrath, stay his wrath, stay, stay it again. Spurgeon said, God's mercy is so great that you may, so, you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. No nation can ever blame God that he finally said, that's the final chapter. Because God's grace and mercy has been uh, there for year after year after year and generation after generation after generation. You know, we're the place in, in our lifetime and in, in our own nation, and our leaders lie, the people lie, we can't discern what's right or wrong. It's like our national conscience has been seared. If you even mention something that's true, people think you're from outer space. Actually, they respect outer space You're from church. That's Aliens are cool. Christians, not so much. We need for our own nation's conscience to be pricked. Ravenhill said there's one thing we need above everything else. It's something we don't talk about these days. We need a mighty avalanche of convicting of sin. Sin is not even hardly mentioned, hard. It's not mentioned a lot from pulpits anymore. I mean, the word sin. I've even, you know, I've even read things where they say you need to avoid even mentioning that word because it can turn people off. Turn them off to where? Is there a is there a lower place than hell? <laughs> I don't understand that. If if you're lost, you're lost. They can only be turned. Uh, the only thing we can do is shine the light, and that's what the prophets kept doing, but the rulers didn't want it. And the people didn't want it. By the way, the people, the rulers you have are what the people want. And the people you have are what the rulers want. So they, they go hand in hand. We currently, have, um, we currently have a candidate running for office uh, who, does, um, who doesn't follow the Bible. Is telling Christians to shelve any of their misunderstandings of what God says about human life. That there isn't a single verse in Scripture, but you need to know, there's not a single verse in Scripture, not one, that would ever support aborting and killing a baby. Not a single verse. Nobody could ever find one in the Bible that says that that would be okay. Aside from it happening accidentally, or maybe trying to save the life of the mother, those things, but those would just be normal compassion, wouldn't it? <laughs> you don't even have to, you don't have to think about dumb things like that. People are like, what about the?" I'm like, why would you bring that? Well, of course we would try and save the mother. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about murder. But we've got greed, we've got immorality, we've got adultery, we've got covetousness, we've got violence. You know, we as a nation, we want to worship wooden stone too. And what? And, and stone idols have demons behind them, and demons actually want to bring death destruction, immorality, divorce, murder, all these things. And so this, this pattern, that Israel again and again, and God is pleading and sends prophet after prophet after prophet, but they're moving up the timeline, and they don't know it. But eventually the timeline stops. And we look, close with these two certainties, two certainties. We'll look, at the, uh, we'll look at the bad news first and close with the good news. There's two certainties in verses 33 through 49. Um, The first one is that judgment is definitely going to come. Judgment is definitely going to come. And he says, I'll kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree. Every green tree in you, the blazing fire, shall not be quenched. From all face of the south to the north shall it be scorched. All flesh shall see that I have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Um, in Zephaniah 1, verse 4, it says this. It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from the place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Judgment is going to come, the fire that quench—it's the, the city's going to be burnt, but much of the vegetation, I mean, it's just, Babylon's just going to overrun and destroy and slaughter the people, set it all on fire, the trees, the buildings, everything. It was to shame and completely demoralize. But the Lord is the one bringing it, right? Babylon's just, and we, we, we're going to get to uh, chapter 21, the sword of Babylon is actually in hand of God's hand. Babylon is like a... Samurai sword, if you will, in the Lord's hand. But the judgment is definitely going to come. It's certainly going to come. There's nothing that could possibly stop it at this point. Um, everything, you know, the Lord has said that these things must come to pass, they will come to pass. But there's also the other certainty here in verses 33 through 44. And the Lord says, as I live, look at verse 33. As I live, says the Lord, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. God is a jealous God. He will never let, he chose Israel, he preserves Israel, and one day Israel will be ruled by the Lord. If you go to Israel today, they have lots of atheists. They have people that are Buddhist. They have Orthodox Jews that don't accept Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, they'll get very violently angry at you. You present Jesus Christ to them. they're not happy. Then uh, you have the, uh, the moderates. you have all these different levels of, of how committed they are to, even to Judaism, but Judaism won't bring salvation anyway, only the, the Messiah Yeshua. But he says in verse 34, I'll bring you out of the countries and gather you out of the places you've been scattered with a mighty hand. God's going to bring all the children of Israel back from all these lands. I'll make you pass, verse 37, I'll make you pass under the rod. I'll bring you into the bond of the covenant. See, God created the covenant, and he'll sustain the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you and I and those who transgress against me. The Lord is going to dis- separate separate. Sheep from goats, those that are really not followers, will be purged out. They'll not enter the land. Then you will know that I am the Lord as for you, O house of Israel, verse 39. Um, Thus says the Lord, go serve every one of you his idols, and hereafter if you will not obey but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and idols from that holy mountain. On the height of Israel says the Lord, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. And there will I accept and there will I require your offerings and your first fruits of your sacrifice together with all the holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when when I bring you out from among the peoples. And I will be hallowed, the latter part of the verse, I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Look at the verse 43. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils you've committed. Then you shall know, verse 44, that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, according not to your wicked ways nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says, Lord, not according to your wicked ways. That's grace. Not according to all that you've done. See, nobody really deserves grace, yet God is going to keep the covenant. He's going to restore the nation. In Zechariah chapter 10, you can turn there. We'll close in this passage. Zechariah chapter 10. We see a couple of things in the restoration of Judah and Israel here. Look at verse 3. He says, uh, and this is, this is for our own nation too. My anger, look at verse 3 of chapter 10 in Ze- uh, Zechariah 10. You take a right-hand turn from Ezekiel if you are trying to get there. Past some of the minor prophets. Past Haggai, right after Haggai, Zechariah. Chapter 10, look at verse 3. The Lord says, my anger is kindled against the shepherd, and I will punish the goat herds. The Lord of hosts will visit his flock in the house of Judah. Now, first, the Lord says, all those that were leading the people astray and not proclaiming the word, they're going to be purged out. The goat herders and the goats. What will be left are shepherds and sheep. We want to be both. Amen. <laughs> we want to be shepherds and sheep in our own nation here. But, but then here comes the beautiful part. Look at verse 6. I will strength, verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have what? Mercy on them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them aside. So the former judgments will be absolved by the mercy of God. For I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Look at verse 8. I love this verse 8. I will whistle for them. Any of your parents ever do that when you were kids? God uses that imagery. We were talking about this. We had, lo- we had dinner with some folks. And uh, we said, Remember when you were a kid and your parents would yell for dinner, like, Timothy? You know, all across the night. No one does that anymore. Maybe some of you do. Like, no one ever does that anymore. People are like, I'll text them, you know? But God says, I'll whistle for them and gather them. I'll redeem them and they shall increase as they once increased. Not only will they increase as they once increased, but the land will increase again, the date palms will be back. The deserts won't be deserts anymore. The fatherless will have children. Everything's going to be restored. Isn't that wonderful? It's coming. Verse 12, all the way down to verse 12, last one. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name. Up and down, kind of like the angels of the Holy of Holies, kind of walking back and forth in the presence of the Lord. They'll walk up and down in the name of the Lord. Why? Because God is going to keep his covenant with Abraham his own faithfulness, his own love, Israel will one day be fully restored and they'll worship and follow the Lord and walk up and down in his name and up and down in his love. And guess what? If you're saved, you're going to be there too. Amen? Great to know. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time again. Lord, we love your word and we also love our own nation. We pray that you uh, Lord, open the eyes of the people around us that don't know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, you said that Nineveh didn't know its right hand for its left hand, and Lord, that's why you were gracious, because you gave the opportunity to send Jonah, a protected prophet in their midst. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to be uh, the lights and the witnesses to people around us that don't know these things. We'd present them graciously, we'd present them in love, but Lord, we pray that uh, you would use us to be those that bid People to come and experience your grace. Lord, someday we look forward to gathering with all the saints that have gone before us to walk up and down in your name. But Lord, we have the privilege to walk in your name now by the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed, Heaven.